Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This CME activity titled, Strategies for Optimizing Timelines of Diagnosis and Treatment of Patients with Lung Cancer During Global Crises, is brought to you by the American College of Chest Physicians and supported by an independent educational grant from AstraZeneca Pharmaceuticals, an educational grant from Genentech, a member of the Roche Group, and an independent medical education grant from Merck Sharp and Dome Corporation. Before starting this activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Good evening, everyone. I'm Eric Edel, and I'm very excited tonight that we have three expert panelists with us that are going to share their experience on strategies for optimizing the timeliness of diagnosis, treatment with lung cancer during a global crisis. And I'm going to turn the program now over to Dr. Chenek, who will give the first presentation. So now that the initial data came out and a couple of years have passed and we're starting to regroup, some of these questions we're, we're, we're looking back at, which is how risky is it to perform a bronchoscopy on a COVID-positive patient? This is something that scared us to death, or at least myself, early on when we weren't sure if we were truly protected. So, uh, And then the early guidelines were based on data from the initial SARS epidemic, which recommended significant restrictions on procedural volume. But we know that when proper PPE is utilized, the risk of transmission to COVID healthcare workers is actually very low. And so this reminds me to kind of go back. So when the pandemic initially started, there was a group of interventional pulmonary physicians who, who um, started the global pandemic SARS-CoV-2 Bronx database. They reached out to a lot of people to try to have them record their patients. Um, I think this was a, a brilliant idea to try to get more information. And Ultimately, in the, in the manuscript, there are 289 patients with known or suspected COVID, and this was done in March to August of 2020, so really right at the beginning of the pandemic. And so what they saw in this patient population is that bronchoscopy established the diagnosis in about half of the patients, and it also changed management in about half of the patients, whether that was new treatment or changing their location or removal of existing treatment. Did the COVID outbreak impact access to lung cancer diagnosis and treatment? Again, this is now we're looking back and seeing how, how did it really impact? Were we able to take care of patients? Where, where, where were the delays? And so this is a multi-center trial from Italy that compared access the year before the pandemic and the year of the pandemic. And between these two years, there was about a 7% decline in new lung cancer diagnoses. That was not a statistically significant p-value, but erred in that direction. And that newly diagnosed lung cancer patients in 2020 were more likely to be diagnosed with stage four disease. But in this particular study, there was no difference in interval between symptom onset and radiologic diagnosis, cytologic diagnosis for treatment. So in this study, it's pretty impressive. There was actually very, uh, there was no delay detected. Now, how about, this is another study looking at the same thing from Canada and did the same thing compared a year before the pandemic and the year of the pandemic. And I specifically highlight referral to diagnosis because that's oftentimes where IP steps in is that, is that time frame. And for them, the recommended wait time they were shooting for was 30 days. And interestingly enough, they actually saw that. They looked at the percentage of patients that went from referral to diagnosis in 30 days to be 40% in 19, 2019 and 48% in 2020. But what we do see is that there's a, a overall a big decrease in new lung cancer diagnoses of about 35%. So while out of those patients that presented, they were taken care of, people just weren't presenting for their diagnoses. So this 
um, brings up the last point, which is telemedicine. And for our institution, we we, were, we had an early uh, multidisciplinary thoracic oncology clinic that quickly switched to a telehealth clinic, um, which we have kept because uh, we find that it allows patients who live far from the hospital to get opinions from providers and multiple specialties all in one morning. And then we have family members sometimes remotely from across the country who either can't be physically present um, due, due to distance, or maybe they have COVID and they can't be present, but they're able to participate in these meetings. But I think important to remember about telemedicine, and, and I think we've all experienced this, is that it's not always seamless, right? It requires broadband or high-speed internet and internet-capable device and technolo technological literacy of the patient. So there's somewhere around close to 20 million Americans who don't have broadband service. So important to remember that while telemedicine has, has been very helpful in opening, uh, opening up care for patients um, around the country, um, there's a number of patients who are missed by this because of the lack of technology. That was excellent. We'll move on to our second speaker, Dr. Jenny Reisenauer from the Mayo Clinic. Uh, she's a unique hybrid of thoracic surgery and interventional pulmonary. Dr. Reisenauer, you're on. So as, as many on this webinar already know, one of the difficulties in managing lung cancer outside of a pandemic, let alone within a pandemic, is that there's variability in terms of how the patient ultimately makes their way to treatment. And so how can we streamline care? A prospective study that was recently published in the Annals of Thoracic Surgery looked at approximately 300 patients. And, and, and the section that I pulled out looked at just lung cancer alone, but this was replicated in esophageal cancer patients as well. And all of these patients were reviewed in a multidisciplinary tumor board. And what they found is that the recommendations after the tumor board met and discussed the patients changed up to 40% of the time, including staging and assessment plans, which changed up to 60% of the time. And recommendations were followed in 97% of cases when they followed up with these patients several months after meeting of the tumor board and carrying out of the proposed treatment plans. So what that suggests is that sometimes it's better to have another eye look at things, but it's also better for efficiency of healthcare to have multiple brains looking at the same case. What we've learned as a result of COVID-19 is, is there are now guidelines for how to triage thoracic patients. And not only was this published in the thoracic surgery literature, but also in the Journal of Clinical Oncology as just one cohort of a larger group of patients that present with other types of cancer, for example, colorectal cancer. And what they did is divide this up into three phases, basically based on the amount of resources that remain, the peak within your particular hospital, and the trajectory of the, uh, of the expected course of uh, cases in that region. And so just to look at these by phases, the first phase is uh, arguably the phase that we're possibly in right now, where there's ample resources, there's ventilatory capacity, ICU capacity. The trajectory of cases do not appear to be in rapid escalate escalation. And under this umbrella, um, solid, solid lung cancers that were greater than two centimeters or node positive lung cancer or post-induction uh, patients that are kind of in that four to six week window should be offered surgery as a priority. The recommendation was to delay predominantly ground glass, less than two centimeters, carcinoma, carcinoid, thymoma, oligometastatic, or pay any patient that would have a presumed need for a ventilator. Again, this is generalizable themes. Um, if if a, a physician was in an institution where they were at the tail end of the pandemic or in between peaks and there was overwhelming capacity to where now you're talking about OR utilization issues, you probably could delve into this third group. 
We then looked at phase two, which where, where the hospital had many COVID patients, limited but not totally excluded ICU capacity, limited OR supplies, um, or none of the above, but the trajectory is projected to increase in the next couple of weeks. In this situation, it was really recommended that surgery should be considered for more of those semi-urgent cases, meaning tumors that were infected, complications of surgery, um, somebody that was uh, symptomatic, maybe had hemoptysis or significant shortness of breath, but really defer all those other routine, perhaps stage one or, or what we would call elective uh, cancer cases. And then the last would be phase three, where all the resources are essentially routed to COVID, supplies are exhausted, hospitals are on triage, and many are not even accepting patients. And in this situation, the guidelines recommend really only doing surgery if the airway is threatened or there's a tumor-associated sepsis. So what can we do to expedite care and avoid delays? Um, are there any opportunities here to make care more efficient in, an, in a seemingly inefficient um, uh, situation. Uh, telemedicine has been alluded to. Dr. Chanik discussed this, and I'll throw in my two cents. I think there are significant benefits is that a patient can see multiple providers from the comfort of their own home. There have been multiple pilots with telemedicine that have been published. These have all been done in screening populations or, or, or follow-up surveillance populations. Notably, it has not been done in patients that have been going undergoing consultation but what they have shown is no difference in the quality or degree of care. And time will show whether this remains to be the case in this particular situation. Thank you very much, Dr. Eisenhower. That was excellent. Okay, so we will now shift gears a little bit. Dr. Flores is our medical oncologist from the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. So the COVID pandemic changed the entire spectrum of cancer care, including delays in diagnosis, treatment and halting of clinical trials. But something that I saw personally and data has showed is the stage migration. And what a stage migration is, when we trans, when we see the data from 2022 and one for patients with lung cancer, patients were most likely to present to the ER via metastatic site and symptoms that being diagnosed early. And that re is relevant to the first question. During the first part of the pandemic, we saw a decrease in the number of lung cancer screening. And we're already doing very poorly with lung cancer screening, to be clear, but then the number significantly decreased after that. So what has happened? So there's two phases. The acute phase of the pandemic, the lung cancer screening went down, then we slowly recovered. And the NCI and the American Cancer Society released grants to motivate uh, reinitiation or return to screening. This was just presented at ASCO less than a month ago. This is particularly for breast where other initiatives have been seen and which increase the implementation of screening is still within the environment of the pandemic. Um, and we're seeing more and more data how we can learn from this crisis to continue to screen our patients. Something that really happened with the pandemic is many of the disparities existing in lung cancer widened. People lost their insurance. People didn't have the financial resources to look for help. Vulnerable populations, Blacks, African-Americans, um, Hispanic and Native Americans have jobs that which they don't have the privilege of going home, increasing, like working from home, increasing the rates of infection. We have talked about telemedicine, and telemedicine has been a great resource for areas that are remote. 
But there was also a challenge with telemedicine that we continue to see and new data has been published about this. And as if the patient is not English speaking, actually provided a digital device because it was less likely that an interpreter was incorporated into the telemedicine visit. Interpreters were already very few and stranded. So I'm not saying no to do telemedicine. We have patients that English is not the first language, but use the appropriate resources to support it. Excellent job, Dr. Flores. Well, I want to again thank our outstanding panelists. This activity was part of a seven-part series brought to you by the American College of Chest Physicians and supported by an independent educational grant from AstraZeneca Pharmaceuticals, an educational grant from Genentech, a member of the Roche Group, and an independent medical education grant from Merck Sharp and Dome Corporation. To receive your free CME credit or to view other activities in this series, go to reachmd.com CME. This is CME on ReachMD. Be part of the knowledge.